All right, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, Matthew 4. We're going to start with verse 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That'll be our passage. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. We thank you for this Christmas day. We thank you that you came to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali uh, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And here we are, Gentiles, here to receive the light of the world. And so, Lord, from this passage, we pray that you would put together a Christmas message that would bless each and every person present. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat. So in this picture that we see in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had already come out of uh, the wilderness, and he uh, was without food and water for 40 days, and he began his public ministry, and the very first words out of his mouth in his public ministry was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he started this ministry in Zebulun and Naphtali, and as we saw in this prophecy that was quoted out of Isaiah chapter 9, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And and as we see this picture, uh, it was given to Isaiah. And last night in our our Christmas Eve service, we looked at Isaiah chapter 7. When um, in in Isaiah chapter 7, that the virgin will be with child. And we saw also in the scripture so that it might be fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. Because Matthew is the one who keeps repeating that statement so that it might be fulfilled And he keeps referring to these Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And then in chapter 4, we find again that he said, so that it might be fulfilled. And here you have this this, uh, commentary on Zebulun and Naphtali. And none of us really know Zebulun. None of us really know Naphtali. It's obscure tribes. There were 12 tribes of Israel. When King Solomon died, uh, 10 of the tribes rebelled and went to the north. And then the other two tribes encompassed in the south what would be called Judah. But two of the ten tribes in the north were Zebulun and Naphtali. And Zebulun and Naphtali are not mentioned in the Old Testament. They're insignificant tribes. There's really nothing of, of, of anything special in relation to them. But we're going to see in this prophecy, we're going to see so that it might be fulfilled what Matthew is declaring t- today uh, for us. But before we get into that study, I wanted to share with you, a lot of you heard last night um, that I shared at, at 2 o'clock on Christmas Eve, uh, our, our friend of the ministry, Gail McWilliams, went to be with the Lord. And for those of you who don't know Gail, uh, she w- had an amazing ministry. And um, she was told by the doctors as she was pregnant that if she was to give birth to this child because she had an, uh, an issue with her eyes, that if she were to give birth to this child, she would go completely blind. And the doctor uh, told her, you need to abort this fetus. And Gail being so pro-life and realizing that just because I'm going to lose my blindness doesn't mean that this child needs to lose its life. And, and the, the doctor was incredulous and, and angry and uh, made her wait in the waiting room and, and belittled her and on and on and on. But she kept the child, and of course she did go blind. 
She went blind on Christmas Day. Uh, she went blind on Christmas Day, lost her sight completely, and she went on to have other children. Uh, we've become very close with one of her children, Ellison, and Ellison means the world to us, and we've been doing our best to minister to her through the loss of her mother. But she lost her eyesight on December 25th, and then as we all reflected last night, she regained her eyesight uh, on December 24th as <laughs> she went to be with the Lord. And, and one of the things that Ellison struggled with, she just ma- married uh, this last year, and, and uh, Gail kept saying, and my daughters were there, they were part of the wedding uh, party, um, my, my daughters reflected witnessing Gail as she sat there with her, her eyes that she couldn't see, and she so wanted to know what her daughter looked like in her wedding gown. And she kept asking everybody, but there was a bevy of activity, and everybody was so busy, and there was so much to do. And if you've been to a wedding, you know the situation. And yet they were doing their best to be patient with her, to try to describe, but she wanted to know every detail. What does she look like? And, and give me adjectives and, and help me to, to visualize and, and to have these pictures in my mind. And they would do the best they could, but they were so preoccupied with what was, what was coming, this, this, this wedding, and they had to get ready. And, and Gail sat there just wanting so much to know what her daughter looked like. And of course, as I told Ellison uh, in a text, I said, Ellison, your, your mom now knows what you look like in your wedding gown. All things will be made known. And, and here you have Gail in darkness. And, and for Gail, if you were ever with her, um, everything was difficult to navigate for Gail. Because if there were stairs, she needed you to explain to her what was ahead of her, what was she was facing, what does the room look like, what's the layout of the room. And she would hold your arm as you would walk with her, and, and you would take her through these, these portions of life where she couldn't see. And so for her, everything was confusing, and everything was dark and difficult. I, I reflected on that in this message, because a great light has shown in Zebulun and Naphtali. As I was thinking about that, I reflected back as a little boy when I was... I had just turned seven years old, and we had, my father had been transferred in the Navy from Washington, D.C. to California, to Coronado. And on the, the journey as a family, we, we drove across the country, and we stopped as best we could to places we could afford. And National Park seemed to be the best place that we could afford as a, a, a starving Navy family. And I remember going into New Mexico to Carlsbad Caverns. I don't know if you've ever been there, but Carlsbad Caverns has about a little more than 119 caves underneath the ground in Carlsbad, New Mexico. And I remember as a young boy being amazed by it, and we didn't have time to stay that night to watch the bats all come out, but we did have a chance to see the bats as they would shine the lights in the cave as these bats were all hanging from the ceiling of the caves. And one cave after another, and the stalactites and all these, these different uh, geological formations in the caves, and it was fascinating to witness, and I was, I was taken aback by it. And I remember as we were seeing cave after cave, we came to a place where we were all just in, in, in awe of what we were witnessing. And, and the, uh, the, the park ranger said, now do you want to see what a cave really looks like? And we had seen cave after cave, and we were thinking, wow, how can you, how can you surpass this? And he says, well, you want to see what a cave really looks like? And we all said, yes, yes, we do. And he says, okay, and he hit a switch, and all the lights went out. seven-year-old boy in complete darkness. And darkness so thick that you, I, w- I would put my hand in front of my face, I couldn't see it. Darkness so thick that it was hard to breathe. And, and, and you start to panic a little bit. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but darkness so heavy that you begin to panic. 
And there was nervousness, and you could sense the nervousness, and people were on, were on edge. And, and, you know, squeezing into the person next to you and hugging them. And I remember just grabbing my dad, and, and, um, and, and it got edgy, and, and panic started to set in. And, and the park ranger wasn't his first rodeo. He'd done this before. And he waited just till we all got to the edge of anxiety and, and, uh, and, and before the crowd started screaming. And he, he turned the lights back on. And it just, a, a, you know, a breath of fresh air. And, oh, and everybody giggled. <laughs> that was awful. And I have to, yeah, so it's terrible. And, and darkness is something that really petrifies children. Thinking about darkness and how it encompasses, it's uncomfortable. Darkness in and of itself is uncomfortable. It's confusing. And I think for Gail, how confusing darkness was. And that's why there's such a huge market for for children to have those little four-watt light bulbs that you put in a, in a room that tends to push away the darkness to a point so that a child has comfort and is able to sleep. One of my five children, not to be named, still sleeps with a light on. Um, or I should say likes to fall asleep with a light on. I can't sleep if the light's on. But there's a, there's a, a struggle with darkness. And darkness is terrifying. And I, and I think about how terrifying it must have been for Gail and at times where she wouldn't have her family around her. One time she was greeting people and she went into a restroom and realized she was in the men's restroom. <laughs> and she had story after story about things like that. As I reflected on Gail, I thought how timely this message is. And here you have Matthew declaring that in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, where there was great darkness and death was upon the land, a light had shone. A light had shone. And, and these folks were terrified. Now, as we studied last night in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, Isaiah told us where the child would be born. And, 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 but more importantly, Isaiah told us where the child would minister. And he also told us what the child would accomplish in that ministry, this child born of a virgin. You see, what we read this morning out of Matthew 4 is a very clear picture of where this child born of a virgin would minister in Zebulun of Naphtali. And this was years before the prophecy, and you see this, and you see this picture, and as we've, we've pointed out, Solomon had died, the tribes had split, Zebulun and Naphtali were in the north, and they were in, insignificant tribes, and there was really nothing to speak of them, and it's a wonder why Matthew would record this and Isaiah would say anything of significance in relation to the Messiah in Zebulun and Naphtali. They were backwater towns. There was nothing to speak of in regards to anything significant of who they were. And yet, he takes time to point to us that this is where the Messiah would be. Now, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But, of course, Herod went to kill him, and he and his family went to Egypt. And when they came back, they ended up in a town called Nazareth. And there in Nazareth, they inhabited... Uh, and that's where Joseph had his trade, and that's where uh, we see this picture and all the things that occurred in their life with Joseph and Mary. And they were in Nazareth, which was in Galilee. And for those of you who have traveled with us to Israel, we've been there. Galilee is Gennesaret. It's the, it's the giant uh, lake. They call it a sea. Uh, it's where the entire freshwater source is for all of Israel and most of the Middle East. Um, it's, it's as beautiful today as it was back then. It's very uh, sparsely inhabited in a sense that you can look out over the hills. And you can actually see certain angles that when you look out, you see exactly what Jesus or any of the disciples would have seen during their time. 
it, it's, it's really a fascinating, and, and of all the places I've been, and I stopped counting after 30 countries, of all the places I've ever been in the world, I've never felt more peace than I have around the shores of Galilee. It's one of those places that all the stress and all the heaviness just kind of lifts off of you, and, and you just feel a joy when you're in this region of the world. I enjoy going to Galilee every time. I always incorporate it into a trip. When we go in November, we're going to go to Galilee. I like to spend the, the larger portion of our time in Galilee, although Jerusalem is significant. Galilee, to me, is so powerful and so profound. And this is where Jesus lived, and this is where he grew up. And as we see that he's calling his disciples, and, and all of his disciples, 10 of them, were, were called out of this region, and this is where he found them, and this is, this, is, um, this is where his significance occurred in his ministry was in this region. Now, when you look at Galilee and you look at this area where Jesus uh, walked and where he did the, the largest portion of his ministry, uh, it's, it's fascinating to note that this is the same region that was occupied in the north by two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. Of all the places in the world where Jesus could have trained his disciples, of all the places in the world where the living, breathing word of God and all of the teachings that he would give, and this is where the instruction occurred. When they went to Jerusalem, Jesus had already instructed his disciples, and all the teaching occurred in Galilee. All the, the lion's share of the miracles occurred in Galilee. All of the instruction for the disciples occurred in Galilee. And in this region where Jesus was in Nazareth, this is the same region that was inhabited by Zebulun and Naphtali. But prior to Jesus' arrival, the scripture says that it was a dark place. It says that the people walked in darkness, and they had seen a great light, that they dwell in the land of the shadow of death, and upon them hath the light shined. You see, the people in Zebulun and Naphtali, it was an awful place. And in this region, death seemed to encompass everything about them. There was no light to push back the darkness. It was a, it was a backwater town so, so dark that when it was said of Jesus that he was from Nazareth and Nathanael was told, Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a place that everyone referred to as an awful place. It was a place of prostitution. It was a place of, of, of uh, uh, immense crime. And this is where people dwelt. And it was also a place of ignorance and darkness. Most of the people were illiterate. Uh, there was nothing to speak of. There was no trade to be known of. And yet here, Jesus comes to do this amazing work. When Isaiah says in chapter 9 that the people walked in darkness and have seen a great light, that they dwell in the land of the shadow of death, I want to focus on that for a moment, especially in this Christmas season with all the death we seem to be surrounded by. Death is fearful to the world. It's frightening. As I had the great honor and privilege to officiate Sarah's funeral, I said to the folks present, I said, when I do a wedding, nobody listens to me, especially the bride and groom. They don't care. But when I do a funeral, everybody listens. And the reason why, and even the people who pretend they're not listening are the ones that are listening the most. And the reason why is because at a funeral, we come face to face with our mortality. Most of us in our day and age, and it was common back in Jesus' time that you would, be, you would see death. In our world, we've been sanitized from death. Many people can go through the majority of their life without ever seeing a dead body. And, and somebody else does that. The mortician does that. 
The mortuary takes the body. And, and we try to avoid seeing death. We want to stave it off. We whistle by the graveyard. Death is one of those things that we come face to face with our mortality. And, and we have that in common. We're all going to die. For some, death is frightening and fearful. It's overwhelming. For me, it's one of the strangest things. I, I, I do find depression and I struggle when, when someone dies and I don't know their spiritual condition. I don't know if they've ever reconciled with the Lord and received his gift of salvation, that they've embraced a God who's come to reconcile them to himself. I don't know if they've ever restored that relationship with the Lord and received his forgiveness and the cleansing of the blood of Christ. And so I'm left with a question mark in my mind, and, and yet I still officiate the funeral, but I struggle with that. And I would never condemn anyone to hell because that's not my place, but I can't speak with a confidence of, of their assurance that they have received the salvation of the Lord. And yet I navigate through those waters as graciously as I can, and I do the best I can. But when I officiate a funeral for someone who's heart is steadfast in the Lord and I know that they walk with the Lord and I know that they've received his gift of salvation. For me, I find no depression in a funeral. It's probably one of the reasons why I enjoy doing funerals in that respect because to me it's a celebration. It's gone. I I have walked with them through this process in a fallen world where their body is deteriorating and they're struggling and they're gasping and going through all kinds of difficulty as they're processing through the decline of their physical temporary shell. And when they come to this place where this temporary shell is no longer able to sustain, the soul itself, which is the the true reality of the person, is given a brand new body eternal in the heavens. And the Bible says we fall asleep and awaken in the image of Christ. And for me, when that happens, it's a relief. When my dad died after 15 years of Alzheimer's, it was a relief. I'd shared this with John that I miss my dad. I miss him. But there's a strange relief at Christmas time to know that my dad is no longer struggling, no longer in difficulty. And all things are made known, and he's reunited with mom and everyone he's ever loved in relation to that. There's no sadness, no sorrow, no weeping, no gnashing of teeth. There's nothing awful in heaven. Everything that is good is encompassed in heaven. And he can see the Lord face to face, and there he is realizing that God had had his hand on my dad's life ever since, even before he was born. And for me, that brings me great joy. When I went to Tulane University uh, my freshman year, and we would go down to the French Quarter, I remember witnessing a funeral where they would get to a certain place, and I can't remember the street, but they would have a, a funeral dirge, and they would play the most mournful, you know, uh, minor key music imaginable, and, and, and you could feel the heaviness of this as they're bringing the casket, and they're going down the street with these minor key notes and, and, and the heaviness of the music. And the sadness is, is, is overwhelming. And then they get to the street. Again, I can't remember the street, but once they get to the street, it all changes. And then they start playing jazz music and celebrating and dancing, and the whole place goes nuts, and everybody's erupting. And it's a picture, strangely enough, even in New Orleans, they can pull this off, of heaven. Because that's the heaviness to the grave and then the, the joy of life everlasting. And what happens is it shines a light on the truth of what's occurred. And everyone present starts to rejoice and realize this isn't anything to be sad about. It's nothing to be overwhelmed about. God is good. They're going to be cared for, and everything is fine. And for me, that is one of those things that takes on a whole different meaning. 
It was in Galilee that Jesus performed his first miracle. He began his ministry in Capernaum in Galilee. And again, as I said before, he selected the majority of his 12 disciples from this region. This is where he taught them. And so what happens is Jesus comes into this region that is completely dark, and he begins to begins to perform various miracles and healings, and he begins to teach them with truth. Truth is light. All of them are transformed. The region is transformed, and he brings light into this region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this is what's so profound about what the Lord did. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. He, he raised the, the dead. He healed the sick. The blind would see, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear. He did all of this in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this is what's so fascinating about the the prophecy of Isaiah. This backwater region that was considered one of the darkest areas of the world, Christ came into the midst of it and brought light and transformed every human heart. He enlightened, listen, he enlightened, pay attention, he enlightened the area. You see, that's what you do as a Christian. You come into the darkest areas and you're like a four-watt light bulb. And you dispel all the fears of the children of God. You dispel all of of the darkness and the confusion, all of the anxiety. You bring into that room light. And even as you do this, it it amazes the people. You find in Acts chapter 4 that when the Sanhedrin were present and Peter and John spoke before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, they amazed the leaders of Judah because they were obviously Galileans. And, and what these leaders, these, these Sanhedrin were saying is, they're Galileans. What possibly could they have to say? This is an illiterate region of the world. Nobody even gives it the time of day. And yet they began to recite in Acts chapter 4 insights of Scripture that blew the minds of the Sanhedrin. And they were blown away. And they were unschooled and they were ordinary men, yet they spoke with courage and power. And even the Sanhedrin acknowledged that. What had occurred that transformed these lowly fishermen that were illiterate and ignorant into powerful men that had the ability to speak with courage and power and insight was a simple fact that they had been with Jesus, the light of the world. He had come into this region of darkness and he had schooled them. He had changed them. He had, he had transformed them. And as I said earlier, it was Nathaniel who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was an obscure part of Israel for, for sure. But Jesus lived there for a reason. He wanted to communicate something this Christmas to all of us. He wanted to declare to us that we are the light of the world. He has called us to be that. He lived in this region so that he could show no matter where you're placed, you can dispel the darkness like a four-watt light bulb. And hope can fill every dark crevice of this miserable world. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. He said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What was the light meant to change in our lives? What was it that Jesus brought that transformed the world? Again, in Isaiah 9, the people have walked in darkness. They've seen a great light. They've dwelt in the shadow of death. Well, one of the things that I just shared with that the light dispels is our fear of death. You don't have to be scared of death anymore. For the Christian, it's nothing to be afraid of. I'm actually, and this is going to sound strange because some of you think I'm fatalistic. I'm not. I know God has me on this earth for a season. I'm immortal until he's done with me. I'm not afraid. He hasn't given me a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. I don't walk in fear. I don't walk in anxiety. 
I have to tell you, though, there is a part of me that I am jealous of those who've gone to be with the Lord. There are days where I think, Lord, why did you give them the e-ticket ride? And I'm stuck here on... What was the one where the, the children... It's a small world or whatever. Oh, that's hell. That is hell right there. You see, the grave, the grave remains a final door from which there is no returning because no one's ever come back from the dead. And it scares people. But Jesus said through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, but Christ has indeed raised us from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus shed powerful light on the blackness of death and the fear of death. There's no longer any reason to be afraid. His light has broken down the door of death and has freed us from its terrors. I wanted to share that with you because this is a season where God seems to be taking home a lot of saints. I think he's doing a move of of. of of revival in the land. It seems strange that he would remove saints before he would do a revival. But what he's doing is he's strengthening the hands of those that remain. Uh, my friend, Dr. Crilly, who went to be with the Lord, she said, and she was in her, in her 90s when she died, and she was a, a difficult woman, but a wise woman nevertheless. And when I told her that, that Molly and Micah had given birth to a son and and uh, we, we kept getting word from other members of the family that another son was born, another son was born, another son was born. And her response and in, in her, her wisdom of all those years, she said, you know, Rob, it was always told to me as a child that when there were a lot of boys being born, there would be war on the horizon. I don't know if that's true. But it was one of those things of a woman who had survived the First World War and the Second World War. She was acquainted with death. She was acquainted with sorrow. And yet, when God takes saints home who have labored tirelessly and been faithful to leave a legacy, it strengthens the hands of those that remain. And for those that remain, our, our hands are strengthened because we realize we're not mourning, we're celebrating. That allows us to have faith, to realize that this light of the world has also overcome death. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be overwhelmed. We don't have to be paralyzed by our grief. There's joy because there's a future ahead. God has chosen you to be that four-watt light bulb to transform the darkness of those rooms in which he would put you. And I'm blessed by that. Jesus said to his disciples, and this is what's so touching, he lights every life. He doesn't just overcome darkness. He doesn't overcome death, but he lights every life. And he said in John 15 to his disciples, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You see, one of the things that light brings us is joy in the midst of trial. Peace that surpasses all understanding that guards our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. Do you realize as you sit here Christmas Day that the light of the world has transformed your life and given you a gift that the remainder of the world doesn't have? you realize that you don't have to be afraid of death? Do you realize that you have joy in the midst of your trials and your circumstances? Do you realize, as God declares in the Scripture, that all things, every trial works together for good with those who love God and are called according to His purpose? Do you realize that God's Word is true when He says, give thanks for all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, because He can take all things and work them together for good? He does. 
And this is the joy that God has brought through this light. As I said earlier in relation to Gail McWilliams, if she were to walk into a room, for her, there are no lights in that room. For her, every day was a a cave in the Carlsbad Cavern with the lights off. And for those of us who are unfamiliar with blindness, we are familiar with darkness, and we all know that it's uneasy, and it causes us to be anxious. For Gail, that was every day. But for her, that anxiousness would give way to peace. That anxiousness would give way to joy. And more importantly, that anxiousness and that uneasiness would give way to trust. She would trust. She'd have to rely on those who had a heart for the Lord that would guide her through these dark regions that she wasn't able to see. She wouldn't know where the obstacles were. She wouldn't know where the furniture was arrayed. Yet she would have these folks in whom she would trust to walk her through these dark regions because there was no light allowing her to see with her eyes. And those areas that would cause most people to stumble and fall and be hurt, she was guided. And do you realize that's what you are? You too are a light to guide those out of darkness and to dispel this uneasiness and this anxiety. And when the light is on, you walk in confidence. That's what we do. We walk in confidence. We don't have to be afraid. There is nothing. There is no weapon fashioned against us that will stand. There's no temptation that has seized you, but that which is common to man. When you're being tempted, God will give you a way out. He'll open a door with light to show you where to go. There is no anxiety for the believer who trusts in the Lord and walks with him. And not only that, those who follow you will be blessed and they'll be led into the truth. And they'll know the truth and the truth will set them free. There's no longer obstacles for the Christian. Because every obstacle is a blessing. Every trial is a blessing. Every difficulty is a blessing. That's faith to take the Lord at that and to trust Him. There's no longer anything that can hurt you. There's no longer anything to be anxious or troubled about. Even the pain God uses, as the Apostle Paul says, that I would know the Lord and be acquainted with His suffering. That's the kind of difference that Jesus, the light of the world, brings to our lives. We no longer walk in darkness. We're not uneasy. We're not anxious. It's what God does. And then I share with you this passage of Scripture, Unto us a child is born. And to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And, we will be, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah 9.6. This light came into the world in the darkest region of the world. And it took and manifested through Jesus Christ this picture of everything we need. A wonderful counselor. I think about that. People come to me for counsel. People come to Pastor Brett for counsel. I actually ask people to go to Pastor Brett instead of me. I don't walk around all day going, I am a wonderful counselor. (laughs) Typically, if you sit in my office and I hear you speak, I go, what an idiot. (laughs) That's on the inside. On the outside, I'm, hmm, tell me more. And then the next person speaks, I, you know, what a witch. How could you, you know, that that's our flesh. It's the Lord who intercedes with his wisdom to allow us to speak words other than what Rob McCoy would speak. Rob McCoy is not a mighty counselor. And, and I do give the, the counseling appointments to Brett because he's good at it and he's patient. There's a tenderness about him that I don't possess. I'm like, get to the facts, let's get this thing resolved, get out of here, let's go. And oftentimes, if, if the couples won't stop arguing, I just turn to him, I go, you don't, you don't need a counselor, you need a divorce attorney. You're acting like children. You see how good I am? That's just some of you won't go to me anymore. I I don't know what I've done here. But Jesus is a wonderful counselor. 
You know, oftentimes when people speak, they tend to attack the person who is delivering the message. Instead of look at their own problems, they, they project it. And they get angry with the church, they get angry with the pastor, they get angry with the congregation, they find everything they can instead of want to deal with the issues in their life. And then they lash out. And they say things that are hurtful. And they gossip and they slander. And the flesh of Rob McCoy wants to respond. I get upset about that. And a good counselor is somebody who can listen. They can have a barb thrown their way and it doesn't affect them. I think of all the times that I have bent the ear of my Jesus and talked to him, how I've offended him and hurt him, how I've put him on trial as though somehow he's responsible for my miserable state of affairs when in reality it's always been me, how I've said things I regret, and yet he's never held me in derision. He's never held me in contempt. He's always loved me. He's a mighty counselor. I come against issues in my life as you do where they're so overwhelming that I don't think there's any way out. And yet in this darkness of the world that I've created by my mismanagement or my struggle through life, I realize, God, there is no way I have made a mess for myself too big for me to get out of. And you know what happens in those moments is depression creeps in. And the depression creeps in in such a way that you, the darkness seems to envelop you and you struggle. And when you struggle in that darkness creeps in and overwhelms you and paralyzes you it's the light of the world that comes in and sheds light in the darkness of that depression and you know what that light is it's a mighty god a god who says you think that's a problem you see the the strength of the problem is only manifested by the absence of the resource there is no problem for god he holds the heavens in the span of his hand He's waiting for you to come to the end of yourself, and that's where he'll begin. But we, like Ahaz, when we studied last night, we want to try to finagle and, and, and come up with some sort of fleshly plan to get our way out of this heartache. And yet God is saying, will you trust me? I'll give you a sign. The virgin shall be with child. Ahaz rejected the sign. You look at Cain and Abel. Abel brings a sacrifice of a slaughtered lamb. Cain brings the first fruits of, of, of his labors. God consumes the sacrifice of Abel and rejects the sacrifice of Cain. Cain becomes angry. And what does he do? He murders his brother Abel. You see, both of them were religious, and both of them, in a sense, went to church. But only one worshiped God and was relying upon God. Cain wanted God to see how capable he was and what he had done, and he arrayed this in front of God. And what Abel did is he brought a sacrifice of an animal with the fat and the entrails and all the blood. And you know what's fascinating about his offering in Genesis 4 is that prior to the flood, everyone on the earth were vegetarians. What's he doing? He, he, he doesn't even have a market, maybe goat's milk. Who wants that? Ooh. Some of you love it, my bad. I, there's just a taste of that. I don't even, oh, I don't know what it is. It's just odd. But he brings his sacrifice and what he's declaring in his sacrifice, and pay attention to this. What he's declaring with this sacrifice is, God, I have no hope apart from what you've done in my life. There's no overcoming the struggles of this world or the sin that's permeated or the dangers that I face unless you are my God. And only you can be my God if I'm reconciled by blood. Blood must be shed for the remission of sin. 
Abel was declaring as God had said to, to Adam and Eve in the garden when they tried to cover their sin with fig leaves, God gave them the skins of animals. And the only way you get a skin from an animal is the animal has to die. What he was saying is this is propitiation. This is a covering. This is a representation of the future blood that my son would shed upon the cross to pay for all of our sins. He's merciful and he's just. Somebody has to pay the price. He wanted to have mercy on all of us that have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all of us who've been angry, for all of us who've been bitter, for all of us who've who've wronged somebody or been wronged by somebody and hold them in, in in judgment. God wants us to give us a way out. We are in darkness in the misery of the world we've created because of the pain. And we perpetrate that pain on others by our, our snippy comments and our, our derogatory statements. By our gossip and our slander and our bitterness and our anger. And we permeate this. And we create a world of darkness and loneliness. And this light shines in our life. And this light is the light that Abel saw. And that's why he's in the hall of faith. Because God says that he was speaking of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God in Luke 11. And you see, there's two divergent streams. There's Cain and there's Abel. Cain wasn't Abel. And Abel wasn't Cain. Cain wanted to work life on his own terms. He ended up becoming a murderer and bringing greater darkness into the world. Abel was dependent upon the Lord and his sacrifice that in me is dwells no good thing. God, have mercy on me and help me, Lord. And this is what transformed Abel. Cain murdered him. And I'm going to tell you this. Darkness, listen to me, darkness hates light. Because darkness is nothing when light is present. The only way that darkness exists is in the absence of light. Light is a power and a force. Light is a creation of God. Darkness only comes when God is removed. And the world hates the light. The world hates you. And the world hated Jesus. And Jesus went right in the middle of the region of the world that hated him the most to bring that light. It was said by a priest that I heard who said a missionary is someone who goes where he's not loved but greatly needed. And he leaves when he's no longer needed but greatly loved. You see, God came into the darkness of your life and he calls you to go into the darkness of another. They'll hate you, but then they'll ultimately love you when the darkness is dispelled and the anxiety and the confusion is lifted because you've walked with them. My friend Gail taught me that. Not only is he a mighty God that overcomes the darkness of our misery, but he's an everlasting father. Part of the darkness that's permeated our world is a result of bad parents. I've often said you don't get to pick the parents you get in this world, but you can choose the kind of parent you're going to be. And even as a parent, I've made awful mistakes. But that doesn't justify my children walking away from the Lord. They're accountable to God. God doesn't have any grandkids. He's just got kids. Being born in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a garage makes you a car. You have to come to terms with God with your own stuff. It's your responsibility. 
and we do the best we can to represent God, and we're a dim light at best. But to take me and justify your sin because I haven't portrayed Christ properly, it doesn't work. You can't blame me. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your surroundings or your environment or your genetics. You see, Cain and Abel, there couldn't have been more identical people on the face of the earth. They didn't have grandparents, right? Adam was created out of the dust and Eve was out of his side. You couldn't blame genetics. They both had the same gene pool. They didn't have to worry at whose house they were going to for Christmas, right? They were exactly alike. One chose God, one didn't. You're, in, you're responsible for your own stuff. The light of the world came so that you might know the light, you might know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And yet, if you want to continue in sin, you continue in darkness. And he's come to save his people from their sins. He's an everlasting father. And if you struggle because of past relationships or you struggle because of how someone let you down or maybe how bad of a father or a mother you've been, today God forgives you. He's going to give you a new lease on life and forget what is behind and strive for what is ahead. He can't use it as an excuse anymore. He now becomes your father. He now will guide you and direct you as your, your earthly father never did or your parents never did. And then finally, the declaration of Isaiah chapter 9 is simply this. He's now the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. It's fascinating how darkness brings destruction and war and confusion and hatred, ignorance and misery and pain. And this light is shown in the darkest of the regions of the world. And not only has this light brought a wonderful counselor and a mighty God and an everlasting father, but now, this day, the Prince of Peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding, guarding your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus in the times where you think it's so overwhelming that there couldn't be anything good, and yet God provides it. And you have that peace in the midst of the storm, and you trust Him. And I want to share this last thing, that peace is not the absence of conflict. Darkness will always hate the light and always be at odds with the light. And when you step into a dark world, dark room, there will be conflict, no doubt. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Jesus said, peace I give unto you, not as the world gives peace, give I unto you. Jesus knew that the peace he was giving was not the absence of conflict. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. My word, the sword of my word will divide mother and father and, 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 and brother and sister. He said, the peace I bring to you is not the absence of conflict but my presence in the midst of the conflict. It will cause you to settle your heart no matter how overwhelming life becomes. This world will always have trial, but he is for us a wonderful counselor, mighty God, and everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And God calls us to step into this world as these four watt bulbs and to bring that light into the darkness. And... We walk in this light and our lives have been completely transformed as the disciples were. And that leaves us with the last thing that Matthew said. He said, his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. You don't go it alone. You don't go it alone. 
whenever Gail walked, she was never alone. I reflected on that picture. There was always somebody holding her arm. And for her, it was a representation of the Lord. The voice was familiar, but she was willing to grab the arm of of anyone who was willing to guide her. Because she knew that the Lord had her. From a woman who lost her eyesight on Christmas Day and regained it on Christmas Eve, this prophecy that has been fulfilled in your life was so clearly illustrated in hers. You're not in darkness anymore. You're not alone. He's with us. And his rod and his staff will guide us. And yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil, for he's with us. God is with us. It's Christmas. He's with us. And he is the light of the world. And he has transformed us to do the same and to step into the darkest regions of the world and shine brightly. May God bless you with this gift in Jesus' name. Amen. Merry Christmas, everybody. Let's pray and we'll, we'll have some more songs of worship and then we'll go home and I got a big roast. Amen. <laughs> oh, you're all coming over, huh? Honey, I'm sorry. Don't you dare. Our marriage would be ruined. Now she'd do it. Lord, thank you for this lovely time. Thank you for your faithfulness and your word that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. You came into the darkest region of the world to bring the light, that you were a wonderful counselor, you're a mighty God, you're an everlasting father, and you're the prince of peace. We don't walk in darkness anymore, Lord. You're Emmanuel, you're with us. You guide us, and we just hold on to you. Lord, thank you for Gail and for that picture that she gave. Comfort her family. Comfort Jack and his family. Comfort John and his family. Lord, we, we aren't without hope because we know and we celebrate and rejoice where they are. But God, walk us through these trials and these difficulties that we would rejoice and have that peace that surpasses all understanding. Thank you for the body of Christ where our hearts are, are strengthened together and we have a family. And Lord, as we go home to, to be with our biological families and some, in a sense, are even spiritual families, we pray blessing upon each household that the light of Christ would shine even in the midst of the conflict. And so, Lord, may your strength be upon us and we thank you for the gift of Jesus. And Jesus, happy birthday. Amen. Let's stand.